Hey, everybody. It's Kara Kandel with Pioneer Institute. I am here with my friend and co-host, the Gerard Robinson, the guy who knows everybody. We're going we're gonna to find out even more. Listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's, it's Gerard. It's today's, I mean, man, it, it's, um, we're releasing this episode, first of all, on Juneteenth. So during a month and a year um, and a week, where I believe more Americans than ever before, at least I hope they are, are reflecting on, on why, um, why this is an official holiday in Texas and an unofficial holiday in other places and, and what that means um, today. So uh, that need not go without mention. Um, but I mean, other than that, it's been, we're, we're, you feel like we're coming out of um, the coronavirus crisis for at least a little while because, my goodness, Gerard, a lot to talk about <laughs> this week. How are you doing? Doing well. Charlottesville is a little damp today, but other than that, it's not humid, so I will consider that a win. Yeah, that's a win. That's a win. And, and watching the Supreme Court, I suppose? Watching, waiting for uh, the Espinosa decision uh, to come out, and uh, we'll have a commentary about that depending on which way it goes. But, you know, watching that, but also, you know, um, LGBTQ and what it means for labor, that decision has come out, and And it's just an important time. Yep. It is a it's exactly. a really important so. time. And I have to say, I think that I think that this court has um has really, you know, it, it makes me think like, yeah, I, I believe in I believe in how this works. This is, you know, just some really um thoughtful um and, and I think for some uh, very unexpected uh, uh decisions at this time under this court. And I think that that's um it's a good thing. So we're gonna we're gonna keep we're going to keep hoping that um, that for decisions, uh, certainly in Espinoza, that I know I know we can get behind and that our listening our audience can get behind. And man, if they could just hurry up, because every day, every Monday, Thursday, we think it's coming. Anyway, um, so that said, a lot of a lot of stories, but a lot of just good education stories this week too, Gerard. I want to take you to one. Um, we're we're going to go overseas for a minute, my friend. One from the Guardian uh, newspaper, mm-hmm. of course. As yeah. We're going all the way over to jolly old England. Um, and I really like this one because I've been thinking about this a lot for my own kids and indeed in my own work. And uh, the title of this article is that government is going to fund private tutors for English schools. So this is called um, the, the British government is going to be funding what they call catch up lessons for pupils um, in both primary and secondary schools. All schools can access these lessons, but they're going to be targeted particularly to schools that serve um, disadvantaged communities where they feel learning loss is likely to be greatest. Now, of course, the way, you know, um, government funds schools, run schools in England is, is different than, than we do here. And we do see, I think, particularly out of Tennessee, I believe, um, there is there are some um, philanthropists funding private tutoring, um, especially using uh, recent college graduates who right now probably aren't working as they thought they might be to do online tutoring, mm-hmm. kids and STEM learning loss. And I love this story because I think it's a conversation that I hope we start hearing. We're thinking about, oh, how are governors going to use their GEARS funds? And some of that's coming to light. We got good information out of Florida about support for private schools. Maybe we'll talk more about that next week. But um, but this 
this one, I think it's it's not a new idea. I think it's the right idea for this time. And and I hope that some of the folks listening to this that are in a position to uh, to get these things, these kinds of things funded and off the ground in states would be would be fantastic. So tutoring to STEM learning loss. Gerard, I know you've got you've been reading the news this week, too. What do you have? Well, my story is on the other side of the pond. It's here in the U.S. that's focused on the largest city in the country, New York City. And this is from CNBC, uh, Jessica Dickler, June 14th, title, As Wealthy Families Flee, New York City's Private Schools Brace for an Uncertain Fall. I lived, well, I worked in New York City in the mid-1990s. I had a number of friends uh, who lived in Manhattan and the other boroughs. But those in Manhattan were really clever and strategic in making sure their kids got into the right Mm -hmm. private school. The one that was going to give you a pipeline to the Ivy down the street, being Columbia or up and down New England. And sometimes it got, you know, pretty ferocious, but people were working hard. Well, because of what we're going through right now with COVID-19, because of the uncertainty about fall opening, all of a sudden, New York parents are thinking about two things. Number one, uh, some of them are thinking about looking at their house uh, in the suburbs, not in the city, and taking advantage of the public school system that is there. And number two, some people are really rethinking whether or not they're going to enroll their student into a wealthy elite school if it's only online. That's right. Um, And so people are making some really Interesting decisions for an investment anywhere from $25,000 to more than $50,000 a year. Wow. You want to pay that. So, you know, as we talk about. Can you pay that? (laughs) Can I? No, I cannot pay that. uh, (laughs) Yes. Now that I think about it, uh, Pioneer isn't paying us enough to do that kind of work. I mean, come on. Yeah, we'll have to talk to uh, the leadership about that later. But when we talk about the challenge that COVID 19 has placed on the doorstep of the poor, uh, the unemployed, the working class. And I know people don't often want to hear about the 1% or maybe the 20%, but there are real challenges that even wealthy people have as it relates to what will school look like or not for my child in the next four months. And so uh, it just put in perspective that uh, all of us, one way or another, independent of wealth, yes, there are some decisions wealthy people can make that others cannot, but the uncertainty about schooling and learning, it's hitting us all. So yeah. I thought it was a good story. And everybody, it's a great story. And I, I got to tell you, I, I have to admit to being a little bit entertained by the thought of all the cool people leaving Manhattan for the burbs. Um, but it's, you know, <laughs> I got to say, but, um, and, and also to say that, yeah, I think that this is, um, you know, in, in, when we talk about, when we talk about private schools on this show, nine times out of 10, we're talking about Catholic schools and others that, that really uh-huh. aren't. Um, charging high tuitions and or half the time they're not charging any tuition to students at all. But that also um, elite private schools as well um, that can charge these high tuitions, many times they do so, well, they don't do, they do so because they do so, but, um, but many times that it allows them to fund scholarships for students who can't, and families who can't afford those tuitions. And so let's not forget Correct. that those families are absolutely um, affected as well. Exactly. All right. Coming up, we've got, I mean, Diane McWhorter, uh, author, um, journalist, uh, and and you've you've read her books. I've read her books. Really excited to talk to her next because I think that uh, everything she's written 
um, and in everything that we're, we've been talking about in the past few weeks, this is going to be a really great conversation coming up in just a moment. And listeners, we're so pleased to have with us today Diane McWhorter, a journalist based in Washington, D.C., and longtime contributor to the New York Times. She's the author of Carry Me Home, a Pulitzer Prize-winning history of the civil rights revolution in her hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. Her young adult history of the civil rights movement, A Dream of Freedom, was one of the New York Times' nine notable children's books of 2004. A graduate of Wellesley College, shout out to the Boston area, she's a member of the Society of American Historians and has held fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the American Academy in Berlin, Harvard University, the National Air and Space Museum, cool, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Diane, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you for having me. Trust that you're all um, safe and cozy in Washington, D.C., and that all is okay for you. Um, still still in quarantine, I, I take it. But still we're really in quarantine, and, be- and because, of my, because of my age bracket, I did not get down to the protests. Yeah, <laughs> I did not want to. I did not want to be exposed to COVID, but uh, we can still support. Still support. <laughs> we don't want to be. Lots of ways to do that, right? So, exactly. staying safe is important. So we're really excited. I mean, so many reasons to to talk to you today. This podcast is being released on Juneteenth, um, and you have written so much about. Um, you've written previously about things that really resonate today and should continue to resonate, I hope. One of the things I really want to ask you about first is your book, Carry Me Home. Um, it highlights the relationship between economics and race. Um, it, it digs into the fact that segregation was really key to Birmingham's economic viability. It was a heavy manufacturing center, but that the civil rights movement and a changing economy turned that into a liability. Um, so we're in a different moment today but there's a different kind of political pressure with with global capitalism. Um, can you talk about that nexus between race and economics and how how that played out then and how we're seeing it play out today? And of course, it's a hard, I think, to talk about this without talking about police brutality. And um, I, I mean, Birmingham was a poster child. So there's, like I said, a lot that you've written about you're seeing play out today right before our eyes again in, in slightly different scenarios. Oh, definitely. I mean, Birmingham, 1963, has if you if you if you now Google Bull Connor, who was the sort of cartoon villain of the civil rights movement as the as the public safety commissioner of Birmingham, the Internet will light up because because uh, there have been so many comparisons to between Donald Trump, uh, you know, t- tweeting out the vicious dogs on demonstrators and Bull Connor turning the um, police dogs and fire hoses on the child marchers in Birmingham. So just to just to set the scene a little bit for this, um, the uh, you know the everything the the movement really reached this turning point in Birmingham in 1963 when when Martin Luther King brought uh, his the movement to confront Bull Connor um, and the sort of um, crumbling crumbling system of apartheid in Birmingham and what had happened was when Birmingham had been a um, a heavy manufacturing center it was called the Pittsburgh of the South. It had been really impervious to any kind of image concerns because, um, as a white liberal in towns put it, uh, nobody boycotts steel. 
And so you have this contrast with like Atlanta, which became the city too busy to hate because it had Coca-Cola, <laughs> which people yeah. could not. So, so Birmingham did not really have any um, any image concerns, and segregation was really the cornerstone of the profits because they um, they had a you know number one they didn't have to modernize their factories because they had very cheap black labor to do this kind of backbreaking work, and also they used race to um, to keep labor unions uh, weak, and um, and therefore sort of you know inhibit the the ability of of, of collective bargaining to to get to get wages up for black and white workers. So so you really see how segregation in, in Birmingham has just been key to the profits. Then um, the economy starts changing in the 50s and the civil rights movement you know takes hold in say 1956 really with the Montgomery bus boycott and um, and then suddenly segregation which had been the key to the profits uh, in Birmingham um, becomes really bad for business. So by the time the movement comes to town in 1963, Birmingham is just hurting. Um, they can't get, you know, it's like just, they can't get any kind of economic development. The steel industry is waning a little bit. So, it, you know, it used to be this kind of one industry, one industry town with U.S. Steel dominating it. And so, um, so that's kind of the scenario that, um, that you see coming coming into Birmingham now, the Chamber of Commerce, the movement at that point um, had 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 done gone through a lot of trial and error about how to be the most effective. And in, in, in the previous campaign um, in Albany, Georgia, they had demonstrated against segregation in general, and they had targeted the politicians. And what they learned in Albany was that a politician is not going to act in such a way as to commit political suicide by getting rid of segregation. So in Birmingham, they they, they decide to, to put pressure on the economic um, power structure, and the weakest point in that was the um, was the uh, department stores. So they targeted the department stores, and that's kind of what what ends up leading to a, a meeting of the Chamber of Commerce, where they they agree to negotiate with King, and and then before you know it, segregation has has come to an end. So the the, the difference now, though, is that. Uh, Global capitalism, because the the people who are making the decisions are removed from the consequences of those decisions, um, you don't have you don't have this this principle of enlightened self interest at work, you know. So, mm. uh, so that that's one of the reasons that, you know, I I mean I feel like enlightened self interest is the key to uh, progress because, as as Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. So that nobody is going to willingly give up power, you have to make them understand that in order to preserve their power, they're going to have to change. And that's kind of what you saw happening in Birmingham. And so I'm thinking now, I mean, you know, the, the corporations now are, are paying a lot of lip service to, um, to structural changes and, you know, sort of task forces to address a lot of the inequities now. But um you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether they. I, I think we're we're sort of at the point where uh, they they should realize that they're not going to have a society to sell their stuff to. You know, uh -huh. if if there's not some some change. Um, 
I think you're seeing that in some, um, uh, you know, I, I don't watch um, regular TV very often, but one, one of the things that I've noticed as of late are all of these commercials sometimes uh, you, they cause you to pause. Um, what is corporations now trying to make a statement about their solidarity, for example, with protesters or being on the side of right. And that really, it strikes a chord with me listening to you um, to think about what it means for a corporation right now to either make a statement or remain silent. Um, and any, any thoughts on how you see these like statements playing out in the media right now? Well, I think the statements are really easy, you know, and I of think course, it's sort of yeah. like uh, I think it's putting uh, it's like, put, well, although I mean, to 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 be sure, you know, corporations do not like to be uh, associated with any kind of controversy. Right. So that's just that's that's just a given. That's just the, that's just science. You know, that's a scientific principle. So um, so I guess it I guess it's not nothing that they're that they are coming out um, and making these these statements. But those are really you know, stuff like re- renaming Mrs. Butterworth and, right. <laughs> and, and yanking Uncle Uncle Ben, you know, uh-huh. that's those are really easy and cheap, you know, yep. and they're symbolic and they're and they're important to the extent that um, they're recognizing that they can't just be insulting in people's faces anymore. Um, it's you know, it, it's I, 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 I caution against, you know, sort of giving disproportionate attention or, or kudos to that because it doesn't really affect structural change really any more than, you know, the, the tearing down the monuments do. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's necessary, but it's just so not, uh, it, it's just so does not get at what, what needs to happen if we're going to have, if we're not going to keep going through this over and over again, you know, as the, the fire next time, as James Baldwin titled his, his very yeah. professional say. Absolutely. Yeah. One, one almost doesn't. Sometimes I, I find those commercials quite head scratching. I'm like, really? <laughs> okay, Peloton. Um, Diane, I, I also want to talk about, um, about the relationship between what, what was seen in Birmingham at the time and then the conversations around police brutality today. Um, can, can you speak a little to what the relationship, the connections that you're seeing then and now, and of course we don't, I don't suggest that now means it's, you know, we're only realizing this happened again now, now meaning there's a threat, long, long threat. Um, Yeah. And I've had conversations with people about whether it, it's, it actually is worse now or whether it's just a a function of video cameras. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, some some somebody who uh, some some people I know think it may actually be worse because of this this sort of Trumpian backlash we're in um, to Obama. You know, yeah. but I don't know. I, I guess that doesn't really matter. But here's here's what I came to realize. I, I talked to interviewed a lot of policemen for carrying me home, and a number of them just sort of confessed uh, about how they had participated in police uh, brutality because it was just. It was just the standard operating procedure, and um, wow. that was the way that it, it was sort of the – I think of police brutality as being the sort of successor to lynching, and lynching was the, um, was the ultimate form of social control by terror where you have this large black minority and in some parts of the South a black majority and the, and the, the white um, – oppressors for one of a better word had to figure out how to keep them under control and so the 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 terrorism is the same in that it doesn't really matter 
what you're doing, it can befall you. So, so you, you can't really behave in such a way that to avoid it, you know, it, it could happen to you no matter what. So that's kind of the principle on which it worked. Um, and so you, you just kind of see that today too, that the, I, I think of the police brutality. I mean, I think the, the, the police reforms sweeping the country now are, are great and necessary. But again, I feel like the police brutality is just a symptom of this um, terribly unfair system, you know, where, uh, where a whole group of people are being dehumanized. And, you know, I kind of thought that uh, when, you know, we, we've, for, for a number of years now, we've seen the middle class uh, facing the kinds of problems that the poor, that used to just affect the poor, you know, whether it's um, not able to afford housing or can't send their kids to college. And I remember initially thinking that, you know, that since the middle class was used to the system working for them, that, that reform would come as a result of that, because poor people, you know, they never expect the system to work. So, um, but that just didn't happen. And I think that's back to what I said earlier. I think that's just because um, global capitalism is, is just impervious to any kind of, um, you know, public pressure at this point. And the political, it, so in Birmingham, you have this picture of a, um, of a poli- Birmingham police dog attacking a, a black teenager, goes out over the around the world and suddenly you know Kennedy is ready to, to send down the Justice Department to try to mediate a settlement and also to to introduce legislation to end segregation because you know the the, the thing that Birmingham accomplished on the order of, of those police reforms we're seeing now is that it 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 brought segregation to an end by getting um, Kennedy to to introduce federal legislation outlawing it, which was passed after his death as the Civil Rights Act of 64. So that's why Birmingham is important. Um, but um, so uh, anyway, the uh, uh, we, we, we just don't see, we, we don't see politics respond to the popular will the way we used to back then because it's so controlled by, by organized money that, you know, that it, it's just not, it's not responsive to the will. So that's, that's just one of the ways in which the democracy is so at risk right now. You yeah, know, that- that's a really sobering thought. That's a really sobering take. Diane, it's Gerard. How are you? Hi, Gerard. Good to hear your voice. You too. So we've talked about Birmingham. You brought up some really interesting points about history. I've got a, a question that's kind of in line for, uh, from the last uh, two. So, Birmingham was in some ways the mother of all successful nonviolent protests. The movement had gone through some trial and error uh, to get to become that model. Can you talk about what didn't work previously and why what worked in Birmingham did and perhaps how it relates to what we see uh, in our cities today? Well, one of the big things was that, um, you know, the the theory behind um, nonviolent protest had been that if uh, initially had been that if if African Americans just sort of uh, uh, ex, you know bring bring their suffering into the public um, and you know and Martin Luther King was was so good at sort of communicating that to um, to the to uh, to white people you know as 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 well as 
the black community um, that that people would see, you know, the iniquity of their ways and change. And coming into Birmingham when when they had been in Albany, Georgia, um, the police chief there named named Laurie Pritchett had 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 come to Birmingham to sort of he he'd sort of studied nonviolence. And he had watched what had happened in Birmingham when the when the when the police when when the uh, Ku Klux Klan beat up the Freedom Riders in 1961 when they when they came when they rode you know integrated buses into into town to um, to test a Supreme Court ruling that desegregated interstate terminals bus and train terminals and so he was when the movement came the following year to Albany, he was ready for them and, and he knew that that he that he wasn't he 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 the expression was that Chief Pritchett killed the movement with kindness. So he would when he would arrest the marchers, um, he would sort of like say a little prayer with them. Um, he, you know, presented himself as a godly man. So so he so the movement came to a draw there in Albany after after months and months of, of really great sustained community effort. And so what they what they realized coming out of Albany was that it really wasn't sufficient for them to show non their their nonviolent um, objections, you know, to um, to the suppression is that the segregationists also had to true show their true colors. And 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 present a graphic image that people could grasp about the the Ill, evil and violence of segregation, and so that's why Bull Connor, with his history of police brutality, was sort of the perfect foil for the movement. So um, interestingly, Laurie Pritchett, the police chief from Albany, had come to to Birmingham once the movement was coming to town to uh, to brief the police on how to deal with it, and so for the first month of the campaign. The Birmingham police were being uh, incredibly nonviolent, and to the disappointment of King's chief of staff, Wyatt T. Walker. So, um, so, so, in so, really, the movement needed for Bull to to bring out the dogs and the fire hoses to get those images, and um, and even before that happened, the Kennedy administration was being very agnostic about the whole thing. They said, "We can't get involved. This is." This is not, you know, we don't have any federal um, authority to get to, to get involved there. And, um, the, you know, inter- just a little sidebar, the business community had decided they had gotten Bull Connor ousted from office um, right before Martin Luther King came to down and he refused to leave. So they had sort of two city governments, a a, a kind of polite segregationist versus this brutal segregationist. So, um you know, so the Kennedy administration was saying, "Oh, give give the new administration a chance," and all that. So, it wasn't until they brought out the dogs and hoses that that things changed very quickly, and and um, you know, and, and the Kennedy administration gotten got involved on the side of the movement. So, aside from targeting the the economic um, weak points of the community, uh, and and not the politicians, because the politicians thrived on on being racist um the um the movement had realized too that they that they needed to dramatize the evil of segregation not just the righteousness of their own cause you've mentioned personalities from dc whether it's a kennedy we know in birmingham of course there is a king also work in montgomery 
Are there some women uh, who most either academics or the public may not be familiar with who played a role in shaping the Birmingham conversation? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it was kind of a joke that the that the that the workhorses in the movement were the women and and and, you know, that the that the, the ministers uh, were, were were the show ponies in a way. I mean, they worked hard, of course, but the the women were um, were were really, um, you know, kind of kept it going. Um, they were huh. they sort were, of they, like today. No comment. They were uh, they they. You know, Shuttlesworth, Fred Shuttlesworth, the civil rights leader in Birmingham, who who sustained the only real, the only kind of ongoing mass movement throughout that that heroic period of the movement. Um, most of his, most of the members of the movement were were women, actually a, a fairly sizable majority. So, yeah, and there there were, um, and you know, the the woman, there was a professor at Alabama State College in um, Montgomery who was was sort of the hidden instigator of the of the Montgomery bus boycott and her identity was was kept secret for years because um, she had to sort of to lie low because the um, her university was under the the um, these the supervision of, of, of the white school board so she couldn't come out you know and, and claim credit and and so yeah so there there were the women were, were definitely the, the 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 glue that held it together um, you know, I, I'll say but, too that, yeah, what are you going to say, Gerard? No, go ahead and finish. I'll wait till you finish. Um, we were talking, you know, I, I was going to, I was kind of going to get into how important iconography is, uh, with the, with these pictures I was talking about, not only of the, um, of, of the police dog attacking the, the children, but also, you know, these fire hoses were, they were, they, I mean, they made such, uh, this, I mean, not, not to, not to sound insensitive, they, they also made these sort of like beautiful works of art, these photo, these photographs. So, um, of, of the, of the, anyway, it's just, if, if, if you go look at Charles Moore in particular's um, photographs of the, of, of Birmingham in 1963, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just masterpieces yes. of, of, as, as art, as well as, um, as well as documentation. And, um, so, you know, I, so that's one of the things that you really see today too, with, with how important it is that when, when you, when you saw the, the tear gas, um, just think of that, you know, photos of that. Yeah. Yeah. in, In Lafayette park and the, uh, you know, scattering the, the protesters. And, and I read some, somebody quipped that it was the, the low, you know, that, that, that that Trump had upgraded to low flying uh, helicopters instead of fire hoses to, <laughs> to do crowd control and um, and then you know and then that picture of Trump with the Bible in front of the church I think was that kind of went to to people's reptile brain in the same way that this picture of the of the uh, of the police dog attacking the 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 teenager did um, I, a, a friend of mine who's a was a longtime rabbi in Birmingham actually wrote a piece comparing that that picture to George Wallace's stand in the schoolhouse door in in June of 1963. You know, he called it the stand in the in the church door, um, Rabbi Jonathan Miller. And um, I hadn't even thought of that, but that's but but you get these kind of moments that that need no need no words, and and that was it. And him, you know, holding the Bible kind of like a cudgel. 
Um, so those those things are really important to 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 shifting public opinion as well. You mentioned a professor at Albany State by any uh, not Albany State uh, Alabama State by any chance was that Joanne Gibson Robinson? Yes, it was. Thank you for thank you yeah. for her. Did you know her? <laughs> No, I did not. We happened to share the same last name, but I had run across her memoir some years ago on the Montgomery bo- uh, bus boycott and the women who started it. I knew nothing about it until I read her book. And so when you mentioned Alabama State, it came to mind. And then you also mentioned uh, the governor standing in the door at the University of Alabama. And as life would have it, uh, Vivian Ballone, who was uh, one of the two students, her son and I were roommates at Howard University back in the uh, 1980s. Oh my Diane, gosh. we have we have yet to find a guest that Gerard doesn't <laughs> can't figure out some connected to somebody he knew. <laughs> Gerard, I, I love I'm that time. I'm glad you gave the shout out to Joanne Robinson. I should have mentioned her by name, but um, because you know the the one thing about that's kind of fun about civil rights scholarship is that it's I think of it as almost like a pomegranate where you know you you'll open it up and you'll see these little. Uh, these little cells and then you crack it open and they're just all these little pockets of, of just goodness. Right. And so the civil rights movement, like no matter, no matter what you think you've learned, there's just always so mm-hmm. much more. And so, yes. and they're always these, and they're always just like these different angles. And it, it kind of reminds me, I remember like whenever, whenever I would talk to Shuttlesworth, Fred Shuttlesworth, he would, he, he, his, his intelligence was very, um, kind of imposed on the scripture. So he, that, that was his, the metaphor through which he spoke. And so he would just always come up with some interpretation of scripture that had never occurred to me. You know, it was just like, so, uh, opening, And that's kind of how the movement is. It's just biblical, you know, and, and, and the things you learn, but the, but scholars are very competitive and, you know, there's always like some mystery that you're trying to solve. And, and I remember, you know, when, when people had scholars had found out about that, there was this woman and blah, blah, blah. And then it was, you know, that it was a big, it was a big thing when somebody finally revealed who she was. Cause I think she had moved to LA by then and had, you know, hadn't really talked about it until maybe, um, you know, maybe around the eighties and, and so hadn't gotten the credit that she deserved. Wow. Well, How wonderful that she gets that credit now. How important. And Diane, this has been such wonderful time spent with you. Before you leave, we were hoping to convince you to read um, a passage of your choice from your book, Carry Me Home. Okay, so this is this is the the end of the of the first epilogue before I did many other editions. Um, And this is after this is uh, about the uh, after the the last two living suspects in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, which happened in September of 1963, after the demonstrations had taken place that that spring. Um, Fantastic. Okay, so this is, um, yeah, so this is how the book ends. Um, I will never forget where I was on May 17th, 2000, when I heard heard the news that Bobby Frank Cherry, age 69, and Tommy Blanton, age 61, had been arrested. It was a moment I never expected to experience. Like the tragedy in Dallas that same fall, the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing had ceased to feel like a murder case and to become a piece of the culture, abstract yet powerful and permanent, 
as haunting as the work John Coltrane recorded two months after the crime. Alabama is the name of the, the song, is a, quote, frightening emotional portrait of some place in these musicians' feelings, wrote the playwright Leroy Jones, who became Amiri Baraka. Quote, if that real Alabama was the catalyst, more power to it, and may it be this beautiful, even in its destruction. Birmingham was America's city in a valley, but out of the depths rose a city upon a hill, beauty from destruction. There is magic in that. So that's how it ends, because at the time we sort of I, I sort of, you know, thought that there was this redemptive, um, you know, Civil Rights Act of 1964 that arose from Birmingham. But of course, you know, as as the current day tells us, we are forever in this cycle of uh, of, of valley and hill. Yeah, and absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And it's just been such a pleasure talking with you today. And friends, that this has been um, Diane McWhorter. You can um, see all her various book titles and accomplishments um, at Pioneer Institute website. So thank you so much for spending time with us today, Diane. And we wish you um, health, safety, happiness. Take care. Thank you. You too. Okay, what a great interview with Diane McWhorter. We are back with a tweet of the week. And so this one, I I admit, from my friend Nathan Hoffman. Um, And I I follow Nathan on Twitter, and I thought he had a pretty good, slightly snarky, but we love it, Nathan, uh, tweet this week. (laughs) Uh, He's he's talking about the Chicago Teachers Union, Gerard, and, and I admit he's throwing a little shade there. But he points out in this tweet that only 10% of the black men in schools that CTU staffs graduate from college. So only 10%. And so and he says that um, he's, he's citing a University of Chicago study here. Um, it is from 2017, but it hasn't changed much. And so we're talking about this very small percentage of men of color, black men, graduating from Chicago public schools, going on and graduating from college. That's pretty astounding. And one of the reasons I really like this tweet for this week, Gerard, is because so much of what we've been talking about is the crisis caused by COVID-19. And for me, Mm -hmm. this counts me back in a place that says like, the crisis existed. <laughs> it's, it's crises were extant yes. before this COVID-19 moment. And COVID-19 might have highlighted some of it. But when we go back to normal, we are still still dealing with this. And this mindset in not just in Chicago, but in other places that we have to continue to protect the status quo when the status quo, quite frankly, as we know, is not serving folks. Lots of talk about police unions and busting police unions on Twitter, Gerard. Um, I'm also watching a little bit of talk about busting teachers unions. Just have to put it out there. And I think that's what my friend Nathan uh, was getting at a little bit in this tweet. I grew up in a union home. My uh, stepdad worked you know, 43 years for the same company. I was a member of a union for three years when I worked at a grocery store. So I know the important things that unions have done. Uh, to help build a working class and middle class. But we also understand the challenges. And when you have 10 percent of uh, black men uh, finishing college, hooray for the 10 percent. But what about the 90 percent? That's a challenge. And I know the former superintendent of schools, uh, Jean-Claude, 
who I know did some pretty innovative right. things there. You know, Chicago's been a, a, a tough nut to crack when Arnie Duncan was superintendent in the city as well. He had some success. But the, here's an example of where, yes, we could focus on the teacher unions. That's one thing to do. But so much of that 10 percent says something about the rest of us. You know, where is, let's say, uh, well, or better yet, where are the churches, the faith-based community, um, those involved in higher education? You're in Chicago. You've got a lot of colleges, including uh, one of our HBCU members, Chicago State. Uh, that's a tragedy. The union is part of it, but we're never going to be a stronger union with those kind of 10 percent numbers coming out of Chicago and other cities. That's right. And cheers to cheers to Nathan uh, this week for for grounding us back in what is, um, you know, it's, it's been going on for for far too long. All right. Now, well, now, I just thought about something. You know, we, we opened up, as you did, with uh, Juneteenth. And this is when the enslaved Africans in Texas Texas. Uh, we're told about, um, you know, emancipation. Now, that was then. a lot of those, <laughs> you know, enslaved Africans walked off plantations, some working on the same plantation. But they were clear that if they wanted a pathway to freedom, that education had to play a role. It didn't per se mean getting a college degree or what we knew of as a college degree then. But when you fast forward to 2020 and you hear those kind of numbers, and even though we have more African-American men enrolled in post-secondary institutions than who are incarcerated, something we, we uh, overlook, the fact that the ones who go, only 10% graduate, raises questions about whether or not we have made the real commitment uh, to say that if we're free at last, education's got to play a big role. So as we celebrate uh, Juneteenth, let's just think about the teenagers uh, who've been left behind uh, this year? Absolutely. Let's let's reflect because I don't even know, my friend, if it's a question. I think it's a it's we've not we've not fulfilled the commitment. Um, it, not, at least not writ large. Yeah. And next week, listeners, I actually I can't believe we haven't had him on before this. Dr. Patrick Wolf, distinguished professor of education policy and 21st century endowed chair in school choice in the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas College of Education and Health Professions. Probably I'm guessing no one in this country that knows more about research in school choice than Dr. Patrick Wolf. So we are, uh, he's a friend of Pioneer. We are really excited to be talking to him next week. And until then, Gerard. I'll hear you then. Take care. All right. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>